The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So perhaps I'll introduce myself just a little bit, unless, of course, I know many of you, so it's nice to be here again, but rather than just be a mystery Dharma teacher, uh, which, but on the other hand, maybe my, my identity is no longer operative in the usual way, which is one of the intentions of Buddhist practice, so maybe I shouldn't give a short introduction. So maybe I'll try to uh, bring together those two intentions and give a short um, introduction, non-introduction or to myself. Um, but just to say that uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I, I was reflecting. I haven't been here for a year and I'm um, pleased to be here again. It's been um, I live in Berkeley, so it's it's a long way. <laughs> and but I've been coming here a few times a year for most of the last five or six years. And I'm also coming in at the end of June. I'll be teaching a Monday evening, I think June 30th. And then also on uh, July 20th, uh, Larry Yang and I will be doing a day long together uh, on the theme of, of um, relationships as spiritual practice. And it's we're looking at relationships not focused particularly on intimate relationships, but relationships in the broad sense of um, family, friends, work relationships. And the uh, title of the day long is called Polishing the Mirror. So, so that's, that's, um, that's happening. But it, it is really um, a pleasure to be here. Um, I'm uh, a teacher uh, like Gil at Spirit Rock and have... Um, Really, three. I'll, I'll mention. I'll introduce myself by talking about three main um, passions, really, that I have, and one of them is for um, intensive practice and retreats. And I think I've probably spent uh, about seven years of my life uh, on retreat, which is a lot, um, and and it's been a tremendous uh, blessing and and teacher. And. Along with that, I also have a passion for finding what makes this practice of wisdom and mindfulness and um, developing loving kindness work in this culture in our daily lives. And in fact, that's going to be related to the theme of my talk, which I'll get to in a moment. And and thirdly, I've had an interest since I was a teenager, really, I think, in connecting our deeper values to social change and social service and social justice. And in fact, the book that I'll have later out in the hall, if people are interested, and of course, many of you know about it because Gil was so kind when it came out. We did a uh, we did a book signing and so forth. But the book is called The Engaged Spiritual Life, a Buddhist approach to transforming ourselves and the world. And I'll, I guess after the talk, I'll be out in the hall if people want to take a look at that. So the theme that I want to explore is uh, how to deepen our daily life practice. And I'll be talking about five ways of deepening daily life practice. And I want to start just by saying that for I think for almost all of us, this is 
as it were, where the rubber meets the road. We may have had wonderful insights, deep experiences on retreat or in some other situation. Wonderful insights got tremendous uh, gain from reading or from Dharma discussion. And yet our lives take place um, not in the past, not on the basis of insights that we've had in the past, even though those can inform us. But somehow we need to make this cultivation of mindfulness and wisdom and loving kindness and compassion come alive day to day, you know, month to month, year to year, hour to hour, minute to minute, millisecond to millisecond. And that's hard. And in many ways, um, our culture, in a sense, encourages us to be distracted. And there are a lot of ways that it's hard in this culture. The Buddha actually counseled people who were, as it were, serious about the spiritual life to become monks or nuns. He said that the lay life is dusty and crowded. You might add a few other words, <laughs> I take it. And, and yet I think that few of us are really um, inclined to be monks or nuns. Um, we may do that for a short time, as some people have done. But for most of us, we somehow, I think, fall somewhere in between the, the role of a lay person, as it might have been understood by the Buddha and a monk or nun, that for many of us is a very deep and strong impulse to awaken, to have love be at the center of our lives and wisdom and compassion. And yet we're doing so. We're trying to cultivate those qualities in the middle of work and family and jobs, you know, for those those situations for many of us, friends and intimate relationships and being a citizen and participating perhaps in the, in the larger society. And we, we have that kind of situation and yet we're tremendously pulled by awakening. So how do we, how do we make that work in this, in this culture? How do we, um, how do we orient ourselves in some ways, we have wonderful guidance from ancient traditions. We have beautiful teachings and practices. And in some ways, I think we need further guidance. You won't find a whole lot in the teachings of the Buddha about practicing in the midst of intimate relationships. You won't find a whole lot about how we practice despite the fact that we might be on a computer a lot of the time. The Buddha may have spoken about virtual reality, but not in the sense that we use it. <laughs> and so we have, I think we have this tremendous challenge and that's what I want to focus on. And what I want to share are five principles that have been really important to me for deepening daily life practice. And what, you know, what I most generally would want to encourage is that for each of us, it really helps to have 
uh, at a given moment to maybe have one or at most two areas of focus that really help us say, okay, here's a learning edge for this time for me in daily life. Now, I'm going to mention these five ways which are more, I would say, more intermediate or even intermediate on up in terms of our practice. And I'm not going to mention some of the more standard supports for daily life practice, which are probably quite familiar to many of you. And many of you are probably doing them. Some some of you, your edge of learning may be, for example, to have a regular daily practice. Because that's crucial. So I'm not going to mention some of the fundamentals, (laughs) except in passing. And those fundamentals would include having a daily practice. Very crucial. And so it can be for many of us the edge just to really stabilize that, to have that be be there. Another tremendous support that really helps us deepen daily life practice is being a part of a community and really having our practice supported by, for example, coming here as this morning, having friends, having like minded people. So you have a difficult situation with your boss at work and you can have people to talk to and say, my condition tendency with my boss is simply to uh, call him names which would not be printable. And, and yet I can talk with you, my Dharma friends, and find out how to use right speech and um, deep practice with intense anger in order to work things out. <laughs> and, and community can help in that. And it's very, it's very uh, crucial. And another area is is reading, you know, and and study and really getting a sense of the um, the principles being inspired by teachers or exemplars. And this is very crucial. And, you know, a fourth very basic area is living according to the ethical precepts, living according to precepts of non-harming in various ways, really supports us. And these, in a way, for some of us, to really focus there uh, is crucial. And I could speak about those four areas at length. We could have, and no doubt, we have often have talks here at IMC that might focus on any one of those, and they're really crucial. But I want to mention some others, which, in a way, you presuppose those. And I want to mention them. They're kind of personal. They've come in, out of my own experience a lot. And I want to mention each of them by referring to both a teaching and then um, give for each of them a poem to have a poem that sort of expresses each of the each of the principles. And I'll also kind of give a phrase for each of them that is a very simple phrase. And the first principle is know what's important If you're interested in deepening your daily life practice, know what's important in your life. That might be to say, can I have wisdom and mindfulness and love and compassion be at the center of my life rather than being more on the periphery or something that I um, do on Sundays? (laughs) You know, and and a, a tremendous Uh, deepening of practice and maturity occurs when our sense of developing those qualities comes more and more to be present. And the teaching that I want to refer to is a powerful Tibetan teaching called the Four Mind Turnings, which some of you may know, which is a 
which is actually taken to be a preliminary text in the Tibetan or preliminary teaching in the Tibetan tradition. And this is a reminder of some of the realities of life. It's taken to be something which spurs our practice. It's the remembering of the preciousness of human life, that this is a kind of a gift. And in the the Tibetan cosmology, it's taken to be a fairly rare occurrence, you know, and it then the analogy is sometimes given of this turtle, which once every eon surfaces somewhere in one of the oceans of the world. And there is a something like a equivalent of an inner tube floating somewhere in some of the oceans. And the odds of being a human being are less than that of the turtle. Every eon sticking the turtle's nose through that inner tube. You may not feel that, but that's, that's what <laughs> that's what's said. And, but it's really this reminder of the urgency of and the rarity of this gift of being awake and alive. And they also mention the reality of impermanence, that things are changing, that are that we will die, that life is short, that we don't know the we don't know how much longer we have. You know, we could add to that. We don't know the degree of social stability that we'll have in the next five or 10 or 15 years. You know, there are a lot of things on the horizon that are uh, scary, you know, and so it can give this sense of urgency um, to to our practice. I really want to use my time wisely. And they also mention the um, the importance that our actions have consequences. This is to refer to the principle of karma that our actions have consequences, that how we act moment to moment determines uh, how our lives unfold. And so it's really important to act as best we can. And they also mention the what, what's called in the traditional text, the faults of samsara. The faults of samsara mean that the a lot of what we take to be ordinary pleasures, which can can run our lives in some sense, are more shallow than we think. And we really we're really asked to say, what can really be the the guide for my life? And so it's really for me, it's been really crucial to say, how can more and more of my life be structured by what I hold most important? Not so easy. You know, how can I be more conscious? How can I have uh, not just some parts of my life be lived according to my values, but more and more parts. You know, for some of us, it might be to say, how can I have my work life more consonant with what with what I hold most dear or my relationship, you know, or some other part of one's life? A lot of this is really to work skillfully with our intentions. How can I have my deeper intentions come more into my life? And so for some of us, it might be to work with intention as a daily practice to in the morning set our intentions or to set intentions in our activities that remind us doesn't guarantee that we'll live according to our values, but it can help. You know, I remember about seven or eight years ago, it was really crucial to me. I have uh, it was a I made uh, an intention with a close friend and I my intention and we did this together. And I my intention, which I wrote down was I vow that every activity. That every action will come out of presence and kindness. Very simple. And having it be public with another person really changed things. 
wasn't just this private thing. Like, eh, well, because that other person knew I had made that vow. And might even, if we were interacting, that person might say, did that come out of presence and kindness? <laughs> you know? And so it had, for whatever reason, making that intention, making that vow, had tremendous power for me over, the, over quite a number of months. You know, and I, I would go to meetings and I would have it written down on a sheet of paper in front of me. It would really help. And so there are a whole set of tools that can help us to somehow have that, have that quality of um, remembering what's important, be, be there more for us. Intentions are really, really crucial. Just making vows, having artwork in one's home, having friends that we talk to and so forth. How do we do that? And so the poem I thought I'd read is by Mary Oliver. It's the poem called When Death Comes, which some of you may know, which is also this kind of reminder. Uh, Contemplating death has been, and the reality of death has always been a spur to practice in many, many traditions. Mary Oliver, when death comes like the hungry bear in autumn, when death comes and takes all the bright coins from his purse, to buy me and snaps the purse shut when death comes like the measle pox, when death comes like an iceberg between the shoulder blades. I want to step through the door full of curiosity, wondering what is it going to be like that cottage of darkness? And therefore I look upon everything as a brotherhood and a sisterhood. And I look upon time as no more than an idea. And I consider eternity as another possibility. And I think of each life as a flower, as common as a field daisy and as singular, and each name a comfortable music in the mouth, tending as all music does towards silence, and each body a lion of courage and something precious to the earth. When it's over, I want to say all my life I was a bride married to amazement. I was the bridegroom taking the world into my arms When it's over, I don't want to wonder if I have made of my life something particular and real. I don't want to find myself sighing and frightened or full of argument. I don't want to end up simply having visited this world. So the second principle uh, I, I call following a poem, I call it Break the Mirror. And this is about finding ways to get out of our habits. Because in some ways, the habits rule us. And we have to find ways to, to break the mirror in that sense. So I'm not advocating violence towards mirrors, but, but, but really just it's, it's a metaphor. Okay. And so the, the text I thought I'd read is from, the, it's from the teachings of the Buddha on the night of his enlightenment, where he talked about how the teachings of the Dharma go against the grain of his culture, and we would say of our culture as well, that there, and this is what he said, this Dhamma that I have attained is profound, hard to see and hard to understand, peaceful and sublime, unattainable by mere reasoning, subtle, to be experienced by the wise. But this generation delights in worldliness, takes delight in worldliness, rejoices in worldliness. It is hard for such a generation to see this truth, namely the conditionality of things. 
the causality, the dependent origination. It is hard to see the truth, the relinquishing of all attachments, Nibbana or Nirvana. And so we get caught in conditioning, don't we? We get involved with things. We, and there's nothing wrong with getting involved with things, but somehow we get, we get caught or, or stuck. And so it becomes really crucial to find ways to renew ourselves, to see our habits, to, um, to, through all sorts of means, to get reoriented. You know, for me, retreats have been really crucial. You know, I, I would know sometimes if I've been working really hard I can guarantee I would go on a retreat and, and things would get shaken up some, you know. And, but we have to each find our own ways. For some of us, it could be taking a vacation. Daily practice is, in a way, a kind of breaking the mirror on a daily basis. It's really see, it's because it shines a light on our habits. So it's, really, it's not that our habits are necessarily bad, but it's really good to know what they are. <laughs> because if we don't, guess what? They rule us, don't they? And so it's, it's really uh, crucial to see. So, you know, a practice that I've done personally for a lot of years is a Sabbath practice. Once a week, I kind of no emails, no telephones as much as, you know, which, which I generally keep the boundary pretty well. And I usually, I actually have the privilege of doing that. I typically teach at Spirit Rock on Wednesdays and I go there and teach in the morning and then I stay there the rest of the day. And sometimes I stay in the woods and sometimes I join a retreat in the staff area. And I really try to have that once a week and staying and going into silence. And many of the people I work with doesn't have to be a whole day, just three or four hours uh, once a week, especially at a regular time, makes a huge difference. It's like in a way coming here is like that in some way. But doing that in a very personal way can really help. Uh, so daily practice, retreats. Uh, ways that ways that touch us, ways that help us look in a look in a new way. And the, the poem I would read to illustrate that principle, this notion of breaking the mirror, uses that uses that phrase. It's by the, the Japanese poet Nanao Sakaki. I don't know if some of you know of him. Um, uh, it's a very short poem, so listen carefully. Not as long as Mary Oliver's. <laughs> to stay young. To save the world, break the mirror. As you're using break the mirror in the sense of um, transform your habits. So think of it. Think of that meaning to stay young, to save the world, break the mirror. We each have to find our own ways to do that. It's really about renewal. How do I stay fresh and young? How do I how do I. Get out of ruts. So the third principle is, I call it, uh, let your body be your monastery. And the phrase comes from um, my good friend and mentor over the last years, uh, John Travis. And he teaches, he's taught here occasionally, I know. And some of you know John. Um, But we were talking one day. I think and I was complaining about how hard daily life practice was. In fact, I think I was complaining. And like, rah, 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 rah. You know, those, those monks and nuns have it easy. <laughs> you know, we got to deal with all this stuff. You know, they didn't have emails. 
Although now they do. <laughs> now they do. I have, I have, I'm on some listserv on themes that engage Buddhism with people around the world. And some, it's always a delight to know that some of my friends who are Thai monks in the middle of the rainforest, they're sitting there with their laptops, <laughs> you know, with their emails. So things are changing. Uh, but anyway, I was complaining and and I, you know, we were talking about, well, OK, because John had um, spent nine years in Asia and studying with uh, teachers from many traditions. But he, we were talking about a Tibetan, you know, um, staying around Tibetan monasteries. And he, and he was saying, yeah, they're you know, like the people who are teachers. There, they're really supportive. They just live in that world totally, you know, and, you know, the artwork and everything just points in a certain direction. And and he was saying here. Let your body be your monastery. Don't complain about not being in a monastery. Let your body be your monastery. And what I got by that is that um, being aware of our bodies, I think, plays a special role in our culture and for our practice, because we we live in such a uh, mental and increasingly mental culture, you know, Um Virtual reality is, in a sense, taking over. And how do we stay? I mean, I think it's actually a deep issue. How do we stay embodied on the computer? You may think of that as silly or trivial or, you know, real practices elsewhere. But if we're living a lot of our lives on the computer, then we have to ask questions like, how do I practice? How do I have my deeper values there on the computer? And so... Uh, in that area, I think as well as in a lot of what I'm talking about, there's tremendous creativity that's being asked of us. And let me read before I forget. Let me read the, the quote I was going to read from. This is also from the Buddha. In this very one fathom long body, along with perceptions and thoughts, do I proclaim the world, the origin of the world, the end of the world and the path leading to the end of the world. He's, you may hear that as a reference to the four truths. He's basically saying, look deeply into your body and the nature of your body and you'll see the you'll see suffering, the cause of suffering, the possibility of peace and the path to peace just by attending to your body. No, you can attend to your minds also, but the body is a place that can be a locus uh, of awareness. I think for us, it's a special place. How do I how do I keep awareness? Um. And again, I think our conditioning and our culture is so strongly mental. Some of you know, may know when uh, Buddha Dasa, a great Thai teacher, was asked, what do you think of Western civilization? You know, which I, every time I hear that, I think of Gandhi was asked the same question. Gandhi said it would be a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Buddha Dasa was asked that question. He was one of the great Thai monks of the 20th century. And his answer was lost in thought. <laughs> what do you think of Western civilization? And there are strong tendencies that way. And so there's something about being embodied, which I think is really, really crucial. It, and so for me, it's been important to do that. I, I started practicing when I was a student and I loved uh, it just occurred to me. I loved um, I didn't have a car at that time. I was living in Boston and I just took all of my walking time as time to be mindful. And it was really a pleasure. You know, I said, what what do I think about when I'm walking places? And I was doing a lot of walking because I didn't have a car and I was and 
And, and I think, I don't think there's anything that valuable which comes out of whatever I think about when I'm walking from one place to another. And I said, I'll just do walking meditation when I'm walking. And being, yet being in the body takes practice because we are very mentally conditioned. And, and so I know it's been a crucial part of my practice to learn how to be more, more present to my body. Walking meditation can play a large role. Just taking the emphasis on being present. Be at a meeting and feel your, feel your knee, feel your hand on the desk, feel you're sitting on the cushion. Be with your breath and so forth. Um, one of my revelations about the computer came a few years ago. I had done a five weeks of loving kindness practice at Spirit Rock. I had done my own retreat. And near the end of the retreat, I had to... Um, I had some things to attend to in the world, you know, in my, in my work. And so I had to, um, after five weeks of loving kindness practice, you know, 18 hours a day, I downloaded 400 emails. <laughs> and interestingly, because, you know, in doing loving kindness practice, you just we just repeat phrases continually. And so there was no way I could um, respond to emails without doing loving kindness practice at the same time. And so I would do, I did something, which I I started something. I just would do for each email, I would do the round of loving kindness phrases. I would say, may you be happy. May you be safe and free from harm. May you be as healthy as possible. May you be, may your life unfold with ease and so forth. My own phrases. And then I I put, put something in the body of the email that was somewhat in the spirit of um, loving kindness. And I did it with all those emails. It makes the emails a little slower, admittedly, but it actually uh, brings me to my body and my heart. Because you could ask, how can we be on the computer with our bodies and our hearts present? For me, that practice actually did that, and I still do it. And I've talked about it some, and I think, um, I talk about it from time to time in my teaching, I think a few hundred people now do that. You know, and, and actually... Sylvia Borstein was quite influenced. She's been a mentor, teaches at Spirit Rock, and she wrote about it in Shambhala Sun, the practice. I think it, I mean, there may be a lot of people, you know, and now I get, you know, I have to vary the phrases in the email so people don't think I'm just being, you know, Pollyannish or something. But um, it's a way to do it. And so we have to find ways to be in our body. Let me see. The poem I had was from, where is it? It's from the Sufi poet Hafiz, and it goes like this. The body a tree. The body a tree, God a wind. When he moves me like this, like this, angels bump heads with each other, gathering beneath my cheeks, holding their wine barrels, catching the brilliant tear, pearl, rain. My body, the body a tree, God a wind. You can translate that as you see fit. And the fourth principle uh, I call practice the alchemist craft, which especially means how do you approach difficulties and have them be places to learn. Classical alchemists turned excrement into gold. And this is an invitation to really take our moments of difficulty or even suffering as wake-up calls for practice. And I have found that when I do that, uh, practice accelerates. Learning accelerates. When I, because what's the usual conditioning? 
we take our difficulties as problems to be to get rid of. Right. Oh, the difficulty came. Let's get rid of it and get back to pleasure or at least neutrality. And so there's this deep conditioning to get rid of our problems, to get rid of suffering, to get rid of difficulties. And when we take an opposite approach, when actually our suffering becomes interesting, then there's a shift in practice. Now, for some of us, that's not appropriate. For some of us, there's a, the suffering actually needs to be stabilized. And the main edge of our practice is actually not to, is actually to find some degree of well-being and stabilizing. And for, so I would say that this is developmentally appropriate, this going into suffering. I would say it's not appropriate for everyone. But for many of us, there's enough stability where we can actually say, yeah, I can open a little bit more to my suffering. The teaching that I use for this is from the Tibetan tradition also. It's, it's a quote from um, one of the, uh, from the Lojong teachings, which are a, a, a teaching that use uh, very short phrases. And the phrase is, transform all obstacles into the path of practice. Transform all obstacles into the path of practice. And yet this is hard. This goes against this goes against our conditioning. And so it really becomes um, this um, great opportunity when we can actually say I've had this difficult experience with a friend with, at work in my life. And I see my mind tending to go into blame or judgment or. Um, being down on myself or someone else or just wanting the situation to end. And I can say, can I open to this and learn? And a lot of what we actually develop in mindfulness practice is the capacity to be with what's unpleasant without turning away. We start with knee pains, don't we? And back pains. And, And we learn to be with difficult emotions. And it's one of the tremendous glories of this practice is that we can do that because it's incredibly valuable for all parts of our lives. And so as we have that capacity to open to what's difficult, we can take difficulties, not by saying, oh, my God, another difficulty. We can say, oh, a difficulty. Ah, something new to learn. Not so easy, right? (laughs) But it's something that we can actually remember and it actually ha- and we can as we as we do that more and more, we learn that we actually can can benefit from difficult experiences. We all know that, as it were, retrospectively. Oh, yeah, it was a really awful time. I learned so much, but that's in the past. No more difficult times for me. <laughs> right. So the poem that I wanted to read is from uh, Rilke. It's from the uh, Dueno Elegies. It's about the value, about about the way that we don't understand how so much of what we learn comes through difficulty. Let my hidden weeping arise and blossom. How dear you will be to me then, you nights of anguish. Why didn't I kneel more deeply to accept you, inconsolable sisters, and surrendering lose myself in your loosened hair? How we squander our hours of pain how we gaze beyond them into the bitter duration to see if they have an end, though they are really our winter-enduring foliage, 
our dark evergreen, one season in our inner year. It's quite intense, isn't it? (laughs) Quite something. How let my hidden weeping arise and blossom. How dear you will be to me then, you nights of anguish. How we squander our hours of pain. How we gaze beyond them into the bitter duration to see if they have an end. Though they are really our winter enduring foliage. One season in our inner year. The last principle balances that one. <laughs> and that the last principle is, I would I would call it uh, um, basically go for the beauty, go for the beauty and go for the vision. It's really about being in touch with what most inspires you. And it complements the ability to go into the suffering and the difficulty. And I thought I would uh, it, I thought I'd read a few things for that uh, that illustrate that. But for me, it, it could be to be inspired by certain people, people who uh, could be by our grandparents or our teachers or people we read about in books that really remind one that that remind one, oh, this is a possibility. And so um, I thought I'd read. Well, maybe I'll just I'll read. Um, I'll read something again from the Buddha. This is uh, reminds us. I always love reading this because it reminds me. It reminds me of what's deeper that we all have touched in certain ways. Luminous, the Buddha says, is this mind and heart when we look most deeply. Luminous is this mind and heart brightly shining, but it is colored by the attachments that visit it. This unlearned people do not really understand. And so they do not cultivate the mind and heart. Luminous is this mind and heart brightly shining. It is free of the attachments that visit it. This the noble follower of the way really understands. So for them, there is cultivation of the mind. This touching, this luminous quality of our of our being, which gets covered over. So how do we stay in touch with that? How do we touch the beauty? And it can be the beauty of the vision of the depths of the mind and heart. It can be remembering the quality of love. You know, I wanted to read something on a more social level. This is from uh, Martin Luther King talking about the quality of love. This call for a worldwide fellowship that lifts neighborly concern beyond one's tribe, race, class and nation is in reality a call for an all embracing and unconditional love for all people. This oft misunderstood and misrepresented concept so easily dismissed has now become an absolute necessity for the survival of human beings. When I speak of love, I am not speaking of some sentimental and weak response. I'm speaking of that force which all the great religions have seen as the supreme unifying principle of life. Love is somehow the key that unlocks the door which leads to ultimate reality. So how to stay, it's really, in a way, coming back to the first principle. How do we stay in touch with what really motivates us? How do we, how do we uh, keep that vision there? You know, again, it could be to be on retreat or be in nature, to really stay, in some sense, stay with the beauty. Know if we're having a difficult time, that, that being with what's beautiful and inspiring is really crucial. The mythologist Michael Mead, speaking after 9-11, said, the antidote to fear is beauty. You know, and and it's so crucial to keep on staying in touch with that. 
And so I'll end with something from the, um, um, I believe it's from the Navajo tradition that I, I saw when I visited uh, Chaco Canyon. I don't know if anyone been to Chaco Canyon. Pretty amazing place. And this is this was there on one of the walls. It's about beauty. It says this was this was like an invocation to people. And I'll close with this. Walk with dignity. With beauty, may I walk with beauty before me, may I walk with beauty behind me, may I walk with beauty above me, may I walk with beauty all around me, may I walk in old age, wandering on a trail of beauty. Lively, may I walk. Thank you. So let's just, why don't we just sit for a moment and I'll be, I'm going to stay for the potluck, so I'll be accessible if you want to want to talk some. I'll be around, I guess it's really nice to have a potluck. It's, um, I don't know if the Buddha talked about how it is to meditate when Wonderful smells are wafting through the meditation hall. <laughs> so, um, so just let's sit. And if there was anything which touched you or inspired you or any intentions which come out of the morning, just let those be present. And so we close by remembering that we do this practice not just for ourselves, but also for others. And may the fruits of our time together here be offered beyond the walls of this center out into Redwood City and all the area, the territory, the land beyond Redwood City going out to touch all beings. May the fruits of our time together be offered to benefit all beings to help with their healing, transformation, and freedom. So thank you.